0: We told you so, this is hell And it seemed like we were constantly telling you so During those first few months at stay-at-home orders During the beginning of the pandemic Those first few months revealed a lot about people A lot about society, and a lot about ourselves Looking back and considering the hopelessness of it all And considering we could not err in our own home station wnur Chicago Sound Experiment It's kind of surprising we actually dragged ourselves over here before there was even hope for a vaccine and did a show every day. On the other hand, what else was there to do three years ago? In fact, technically, the only reason the people who work on This Is Hell were even allowed to be outside was as members of the media and to do our show. Three years ago this week, a stay-at-home order to protect us from any further spread of the COVID-19 pandemic was imposed upon the people of Chicago and Illinois by our city and state governments. Northwestern University, where our home station is located, immediately shut down the entire campus, and the radio station was put into an automated broadcasting setting, mode, whatever you want to call it. For the next few months, we could not air This Is Hell on Chicago Sound Experiment, as this week is three years since the the lockdown. We are playing This Is Hell, the lost early pandemic tapes, featuring conversations we had back in the first few weeks of the stay-at-home order that never before aired on WNUR. So far, we played an April 2020 interview with Vijay Javadi on climate change and the pandemic being the same thing. A conversation with Elaine Applebaum from March 2020 on what would be needed to help people survive the pandemic now that the world was shut down. And today, we wrap up This series with a several-time past guest on the show. Live from Thunder Bay, Ontario, on Lake Superior, Max Haven, who wrote the Roar Magazine article. Rest in peace, Roar Magazine. No return to normal for a post-pandemic liberation. Today, new forms of solidarity, mutual aid, and common struggle are emerging in the pandemic. How will they shape tomorrow's struggles for a post-capitalist world? Which is a question we will be answering for many, many years to come. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far?
1: It's been going good, Chuck. Thanks for asking. I did a little light urban exploration. Oh, really? Are you familiar with the phenomena of no. urban X? No. Is where you traipse around where maybe you oughtn't be. And so what I did is I was gonna start getting yoked, you know, I was gonna start lifting. Okay. Get huge. Okay. Um, and so they got at the Truman College Library, uh, my job access, it gives me access to this weight room. And that's cool over there at Truman College. Cool. You get into the basement, it's like an underworld. (laughs) There's nobody there, it's not clear that you're supposed to be there. There's cobwebs and vines hanging down from the ceiling. (laughs) All this cool stuff, you could see the high watermark of of uh, the entire college. There's an abandoned pool.
0: No kidding. An
1: abandoned theater, an abandoned shop class with foosball tables that uh, kids had made, I don't know, 20 years ago. And in the middle of it all, a uh, barber shop a barbershop that was in use, there was a class going on in the middle of this wasteland in the basement and they all just sort of looked up at me and they they sort of said with their eyes, I don't think you're supposed to be. <laughs> Do you have any idea what the class was? Yeah, they were learning how to be barbers. Oh, so it was a barber it class? Was an ex- yeah, they wow. had the stools and the... Holy the, cow. They had the blue liquid for their combs. Yeah, they were learning all about it.
0: Wow, I love doing that kind of stuff. I love just going to places where you're not supposed to go. We actually yeah. interviewed a guy about that a few years ago. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, he would go to like the tops of buildings and take photographs. Exactly. He's mostly a photographer, and uh, every photo that he took was from a place that was prohibited from being in.
1: When you're playing a first-person shooter game, you just kind of go everywhere you're allowed to go. And it's like you treat reality like a game like
0: that. And that's how you feel when you're like in the sub-basement of a building. When they tore down the Rainbow Roller Rink, they found several levels of sub-basements And they found human bones down there because people, like homeless people were living down there.
1: Oh, no, that's awful.
0: Yeah. Want to hear something really
1: creepy? Yes, I'd like to.
0: So yesterday I went down to feed Mel, the semi-feral bar cat. Mm -hmm. I went into the bar and saw one of the cleaning crew I know, so we started chatting. He was working with this other guy Mm -hmm. who I'd never seen before, and I never see him working with another person. And the other worker went out the back door by the beer garden. He just, Uh like, went out the back, so I wasn't really paying attention. I didn't think anything about it until I get a call from Pete, the bar owner, like maybe an hour later, asking if I had accidentally walked off with the cleaner's wallet.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And I told him no, but maybe that guy who was working with him did. Uh That's when Pete told me- It's
1: just a guy. There was no other
0: guy working with him and asked what time it was when I went downstairs. So because we're doing the show, I knew exactly what time it was. I told him and he checks the surveillance camera recordings and it turns out- the guy I saw leaving the bar was not another worker, yeah, but a thief.
1: That's a smooth operator who had
0: squatted down behind the pool table to hide uh-huh. when I entered. And once the cleaner turned his back, Went out the back door with the cleaner's wallet. So
1: was the cleaner at any point aware of this dude? No, no. He just had very light fingers and snatched his wallet. No idea. Way cool.
0: So, so we should have known something was wrong because Mel was just acting weird and he Uh kept staring at where the guy was actually hiding, but we didn't notice. Oh, you
1: could see this in the video.
0: I have not seen Uh the uh, the video yet, but it's. uh, I heard it's really freaking weird, and so I want to watch it tonight. You should just have confidence. During office hours,
1: you know, you can do anything as long as you of confidence. Crouch down. Crouch exactly. Down, take a guy's wallet. You just have to.
0: As long as you have the confidence to just walk in and walk first out. First thought,
1: best thought. If that know? guy had ran out, yeah, I would have right, noticed. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I would have said, "Why is that guy running out the back door?"
1: The guy should teach a seminar. <laughs> he
0: should. Yeah. Hey, you know what? I know a perfect place for him to teach that seminar. And where's that? Uh, the basement of <laughs> Truman College. Yeah,
1: exactly. And get your hair cut at the same time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but more important than any of that, Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from how?
1: This week's question from Hell is what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses, maybe?
0: Do you have any any clue? Do you have any answer?
1: Ooh, I don't know. Like a typhoon in the desert—that's out of place.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. If it was out of place, that would make a lot of sense. Exactly. Like a, a tsunami just happening to go down Michigan Avenue. Right. That would be weird. That would be pretty weird. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell When's your choice of whatever this is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, or email it to us during today's show at thisishellradio@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's an email address that we only really check during the radio show uh, for answers for, this, for the question from hell on Wednesdays. But again, that's thisishellradio at gmail.com But we must have your answer by the end of today's show When we are announcing the winner Following a Patreon monologue We are liberating from behind the paywall So you know what we do on Patreon Every week, and maybe you too will join us As Patreon subscribers Coming up, Dan will be sharing more of your answers To this week's question from hell We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon Podcast exclusively for subscribers At patreon.com slash thisishell And we are uh, taking a monologue Like I said, out from behind the paywall For the the very first time and we'll tell you what's happening next week here on this is hell noam chomsky called this is hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly noam's gone insane this is hell
1: this is hell
0: today on this is hell when novel coronavirus 2019 finally has left us, it's finally gone, when we either have a vaccine or it burns itself out, waiting in a kind of viral limbo to be relaunched again at us in the future, when we step back out into that, what we hope will be fresh air, we very may well be stepping out into the front lines of a war between those want to force upon all of us some fictionalized version of a nostalgic pre-virus normal that was not anything close to normal when it was the new normal, and those who will adamantly refuse that recreation of the old normal and insist upon something else altogether that has nothing to do with normal because every new normal lately has sucked over and over, big time. Now we find ourselves at a place where far-right neo-fascist appearing governments are backing socialist-looking stimulus packages without a second thought to its impact on the bottom line. Which is weird because these are the same governments that said we didn't have any money so they needed to impose austerity and make all of us suffer. Apparently all of that was completely unnecessary as we seemingly have the money to do whatever we want whenever we want. We also find ourselves with a choice to make before they convince everyone that there is no alternative. And we need, I don't know, um, how about Donald Trump as president for life? Yeah, the future is that freaking scary. In a few minutes, we'll have the return of researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, who wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal, for a post-pandemic liberation. Today, new forms of solidarity, mutual aid, and common struggle are emerging in the pandemic. How will they shape tomorrow's struggles for a post-capitalist world? That article is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the S- Settling of Unpayable Debts, which is due out in May. Max's research chair in culture, media, and social justice at Lakehead University in Anishinabe Aki, that is Thunder Bay, Canada, where the, he co-directs Rival, R-I-V-A-L, the reimagining Value Action Lab. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. You may remember Max being on most recently back in September 2018, almost two years ago now, so maybe you don't remember. We talked to Max at that time about his then-just-published book, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven. That's H-A-I-V-E-N. And you can find out more about Max at his website, MaxHaven.com. Com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast. The future will not be like the past, even if those who want to make it look like the past try their hardest to do so. No, the future will not be the past normal, which was not at all that normal when they were calling it the new normal. The future will be something very different than, than what our world was pre-virus, and here to help us consider those possible futures. Returning to This Is how researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal, which is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable. Debts*. due out in May. You can find out more about Max at his website, maxhaven.com, H-A-I-V-E-N, and you can follow Max on Twitter, at maxhaven. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. Welcome back to the show, Max. It's always a pleasure. You offer a quote at the very beginning of your article. Lyrics for a song that goes strikes across the frontier and strikes for a higher wage. Planet lurches to the right as ideologies engage. Suddenly it's repression moratorium on rights. What did they think the politics of panic would invite? person in the street shrugs. Security comes first, but the trouble with normal is it always gets worse which are from the song The Trouble with Normal from 1983 by Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. Now, Max, I'm no fan of Bruce Coburn, but those lyrics are incredibly insightful, especially for 1983, and I guess I should have been listening closer back in the early to mid-'80s. But, Max, if, if normal always gets worse... Why do we tolerate that continuing worsening of normal? Is this merely the boiling frog that would jump out of boiling water immediately to avoid being boiled alive, while the frog being thrown in tepid, wa- tepid water, that's us, doesn't notice the slow rising of temperature until it's boiled alive? Is, is that it? What, what's the, what do you think makes us tolerate always these new normals just getting worse and worse and worse?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. The sort of slow creep of uh, forms of economic authoritarianism and exploitation mean that whenever we seem to look up, we notice for a moment that things have gotten worse and we don't know how we got here. Uh, I think beyond that, I, I think in general, people are afraid. Sort of the neoliberal capitalist order in which we live has told us that there is no alternative and has treated those who fight for alternatives rather roughly, so you know, uh, through economic abandonment or criminalization. So people are, are have been fearful of, of uprising for a long time. They've been told it's not even worth doing. But I think there's something else going on here as well, underneath the repression and underneath the kind of normalization, which is that uh, I think it's not uncommon for us. Especially to the extent that we live in alienating and uh, highly exploitative circumstances, to in a certain way become fixated on or come to in a weird way love the conditions under which we're suffering. Uh, Because to take a stand against them would be to abandon what we have made of ourselves in those conditions. We build ourselves, we build our sense of community, our sense of uh, personality, our sense of agency in times of extremely constrained freedom and when there is a gap and we see freedom before us in a certain sense it's it's easy to choke in that moment and i think that happens on a on a a regular basis which has meant that in various moments of crises in the past uh the opportunity has unfortunately not been seized and we haven't seen the kind of shift in society that would prevent catastrophes uh like the one we're encountering now from from uh arising
0: do we choke in that face of freedom because not that we can't do or that we won't do something about it, but we can't do something about it? Are we, are we powerless or are we convinced that we are powerless?
2: We're more powerful than we can possibly imagine when we work together. Uh, but that power is terrifying because we have the power as human beings uh, working cooperatively with other species to completely reshape our world and to rebuild society uh, along the terms that we choose. But that's a huge responsibility, and it's a huge responsibility um, that we've in some way lost touch with that kind of power. Um, so I think it's a very difficult one. You know, if, we, if you put, uh, you know, and this often happens in crises and catastrophes, if you put people together and say, you have to solve this problem, now often a, a large percentage of people who have been habituated by an authoritarian society will look for an authoritarian leader to solve that problem even if what that authoritarian leader does inevitably is simply command other people to use their labor to solve the problem
0: you said this is a huge responsibility so i just want to make this point so are we what would you say to somebody who says well uh, humans are just lazy they're just lazy they don't want the freedom that they uh, want that they really you know, say they demand, but they're just too lazy to take on that kind of huge responsibility.
2: If that is indeed true, then uh, we have a lot of problems. I would say that if you raise people from birth to accept essentially a totalitarian uh, situation of the economy, which is to say that we raise people to uh, sort of take their roles in a capitalist economy and prepare themselves for a life of exploitation, which is essentially what we do in most of the formal schooling and through our popular media and through generally the ways that we treat children, then of course they're going to react that way in a moment of crisis. But we have, I think, incredible capacities to cooperate, to make decisions collectively, to take care of one another. And I don't think that, that the, the, our, our, when, we, when we fail to show that, those powers, it's not because of laziness. It's simply because we've been told our entire lives that we are powerless and, and essentially can do nothing more than obey commands. You know, the funny thing about laziness is I'm not sure that it's necessarily a big problem. I mean, humans, if humans indeed like to conserve energy and have a nice time, then that's a good thing. and We should build a society that makes that possible.
0: I like that idea. Uh, you also mentioned this kind of, you do this, this a really great analogy, that we're in a kind of self-imposed winter, staying inside because of the weather or virus outside, and we cannot wait until the spring of returning outdoors without the worries that uh, the virus has with it. What happens if we don't change? What happens if due to nostalgia potentially inflating how great the time prior to the virus really was? What if we insist upon going back to that old normal, and can we?
2: Well, the problem, we, as we said in, uh, in, the, in the intro here, is that it always gets worse. And the reality is that some of us uh, probably will get to go back to normal if we, if we go down that route. But it'll be a smaller percentage of us than even enjoyed what few freedoms and benefits capitalism uh, already wrought. It'll be in a much smaller percentage, um, and you know, if we don't if we don't fight back and we don't de- de- uh, sort of demand a different system, then we'll all still keep playing the game where we all hustle and try and sell our labor power as best we can, or or try and compete with one another for a few of the spaces left on the lifeboat of the sinking ship of capitalism. But is that the sort of world we want? I mean, essentially, if we go back to normal. We're going to have another crisis like this within the next decade or 15 years at at very least. Maybe it'll be a disease. Maybe it'll be the catastrophe we know is unfolding through global warming. Maybe it'll be uprisings. Maybe it'll be a whole number of things that we can't predict. I mean, we essentially have an economy right now that's based, at least in its upper echelons, on millions and millions of individual actors, most of whom are supercomputers, running incredibly Uh, sophisticated uh, probabilistic calculations of risk, right? The entire financial sector is basically the best supercomputers designed by the best minds humanity has to offer, running constantly um, these calculations of risk. And none of them saw this coming. Um, So I think we can expect that ultimately, uh, we're going to face another catastrophe uh, of this magnitude unless we completely reorganize how we Uh, how we have shaped society and decide to prioritize care and creating the resources to, to deal with situations like this first and foremost
0: is this then the moment for a Real social transformation a revolution in one way or the other either it being fascist or socialist. Will there be one?
2: I don't know I mean Um, Of course, I would hope that there would be some sort of like socialist style revolution and we could redistribute the wealth of society more equally and uh, in less uh, harmful and um, antagonistic ways to people. I'm fearful that it will present an opportunity where people will rush into the arms of authoritarianism, whether that's kind of a state authoritarianism that's reminiscent of fascism or simply more market authoritarianism of further austerity and neoliberalism. I think really much depends on if we can sort of shrug off our sense of fear and anxiety and hopelessness and, and powerlessness and actually realize the incredible potential that we have uh, not only as a sort of species but a species with incredible tools to uh, shape our world and to work with other forms of life to shape our world so I hope that things will work out much better and, and the, the point of the article is to say we have a few weeks or months, many of us, um, to take a, take a breath, uh, if you'll excuse the metaphor, in a time when we're dealing with a pneumonia-like uh, medical emergency um, and to really get ready for the struggles to come now i say that while also wanting to recognize how many of us are still working in one way or another and i'm thinking about all of the parents out there who are working really hard to you know manage and and keep their kids entertained and also calm in this moment i'm thinking about the service sector workers thinking about the frontline healthcare workers and the farmers who are all working full tilt to keep society going at this moment. But still, I think in the in the suspension of normal that we are in right now, we have an, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to pause, take a stance, and get ready for what's to come.
0: And many of the people are not getting paid any wages, which is propping up capitalism, at least to a certain extent, when they are doing social reproduction, like things like parenting that is being needed more now, more than ever. Um, and uh, I was thinking about how You were saying the fear of freedom, you know, freedom can be very terrifying, change can be very terrifying. What we see with liberals here in the United States when it comes to centrist Democrats, the kind of people who are supporting Joe Biden, that clearly is the group of people who do fear change. They fear the change that Bernie Sanders was about to bring about, given those circumstances what do you expect from liberals in the United States in the post-virus world if they fear change?
2: Uh, I'd like to say change, but I think, to be honest, probably more of the same. Um, I think many of those liberals, at least among a certain segment of them, tend to be uh, folks who feel that their personal fate is going to be relatively fine for the rest of their lives. And, it, it you know, it's... It's not a coincidence that many of the people who tend to support um, centrist at, uh, causes tend to be older. And let me just take a moment by saying that, like, by any global or meaningful standard, these people aren't centrist. They're incredibly far right. What, what uh, Sanders is proposing, as Noam Chomsky and many others have pointed out, is basically post-war Keynesianism. It is not a radical agenda by any reasonable stretch of the imagination so in fact we should be speaking about you know the the proverbial um biden supporters as reactionaries but i digress Uh, i think that many of those folks essentially realized that within the system at least as it existed before the pandemic that their lives would essentially continue to be relatively comfortable at least by global standards uh, for his term and for the rest of their prospective lives maybe that's changing now because i think there's a, a huge dose of fear That, in fact, the neoliberal normal has resulted in a situation where, for instance, the United States has more bombs than ventilators, Um, you know. So uh, maybe people will be sort of shocked into a sense that a radical change is necessary, but such power structures die hard.
0: The United States has more bombs than ventilators. That should be a twist off knowledge, one of the uh, trivia things that we often offer here on the show i I hate the term x i hate the term the new normal because it seems to erase everything that is wrong with the new normal as if we are supposed to accept it tolerate it as if there's nothing we can do about it it's out of our control and there's no alternative in any way am i reacting overreacting or do you think there's something really wrong with accepting the term the new normal
2: yeah i think we shouldn't accept it uh it has a nice kind of alliterative quality but uh i think you're right i think it it In a way, it gives us one of those particular um, linguistic tools that is so common, I think, since the 1980s in our sort of weirdly postmodern times where we get to acknowledge something as actually existing but also get at the same time to be somewhat cynical about it. Because nobody says, like, oh, this is just great. It's the new normal. It's always like, oh, now we have the new normal. But it's always the, the implicit thing is always like, We acknowledge that it's bad and that it's worse, and we also acknowledge that we can't do anything about it.
0: I'm starting to wonder if we have more nuclear warheads than bombs, or than ventilators, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, we are speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, who wrote the Roar Magazine article, No Return to Normal. The article that we are discussing is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts," which is due out in May. And we hope to have Max back on the show to discuss that. You write... On the one hand, there will be those who seek to return us to the order of global revenge capitalism to which we had become accustomed, a nihilistic system of global accumulation that appears to be taking a needless, warrantless vengeance on so many of us, though without any one individual intending any particular malice and one which breeds the worst kind of revenge politics. What do you mean by revenge politics? Do you think that's a better descriptor than the more popular term of Partisan politics. Is this more about vengeance than partisanism?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with partisanship if you're a partisan for something that is good Um, There's a kind of weird way that terms like partisanship or populism actually simply normalize the um, the kind of uh, unspoken violence of Capitalist quote-unquote liberalism, uh, which positions itself as the center and can only sustain itself uh, in this position at the center by defaming uh, the things on its left and its right without of course recognizing that the thing and its things on its right are talking about genocide and destruction and disposability of human, pe- human beings, and those things on its left are calling for things like free health care or you know treating people relatively equally so I think this uh, approach to speak about populism or, or um, uh partisanship is not so helpful and it's why i try and introduce in this book the concept of revenge politics and revenge capitalism i see revenge politics and this kind of reactionary authoritarian wave that's sweeping the world right now in the united states and elsewhere as essentially a kind of reflex or expression of uh, on, on the level of politics of what is actually occurring on the level of the capitalist economy as a whole, which is that that economy itself, without anyone necessarily intending it, is taking this kind of needless, warrantless vengeance on humanity through things like rendering whole populations surplus and therefore left to die. Or for instance, through imposing unpayable debts on whole populations and on so many of us Or in terms of, you know, basically opening up the sphere of the mind to capitalist exploitation through the kind of neurohacking that is now being developed by Silicon Valley tech firms and on and on. So there's something about the way that capitalism is working right now that is in and of itself nihilistic and at a dead end. And that has its expression in the realm of politics, unfortunately, mostly in terms of awakening Fortifying and indeed often funding the worst kind of right-wing revanchist politics But also I argue in the book it might have the potential to awaken what I call an avenging imaginary Which is what I hope would animate our visions of what a future society might look like and just to make that clear I'm not speaking necessarily about you know revenge against individual capitalists or politicians. I don't actually think that's particularly useful Um, I'm speaking instead about avenging ourselves on the systems that have made us so disposable, that have sown the seeds of uh, of racism, sexism, homophobia between us, have made an incredible, beautiful, rich world so genuded of life in so many ways and that have essentially stolen our powers for so long.
0: You write that the debts of the pandemic, literal and figurative, will have to be repaid, considering that avenging imaginary Will the same people who always repay the debt put up with repaying the debt again and do the same people who always collect on the debt that collect no matter the disaster or its cost in human lives, will we again, will the poor again be bailing out the rich, be paying for the disaster? If we don't make a different decision, if
2: we don't organize against it, then yes, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen essentially in this way. I mean, governments around the world right now, including the United States, which just announced its multi-trillion dollar bailout package, are essentially – it's a little more complex than this – but essentially they're going to borrow most of that money for a bailout from banks and financial institutions. Uh, and they're going to use it to keep the capitalist economy afloat, uh, in this moment of crisis. And to a certain extent, they have very few options in the sense that they still need to keep food moving around the country and keep the lights on and the heat on and keep people getting paid and all the rest. But the reality is that after this, uh, the immediate moment of the pandemic is over those from whom they've borrowed the money are going to come calling. Uh, For their debts to be paid back and those debts will be paid back through more austerity and more neoliberal deregulation They're going to be paid back ultimately on the level of everyday life by workers working longer harder and for less Um, and to a certain extent That will be the reality unless we are able to mobilize to for instance say that we want many of the emergency measures that are slowly being introduced in various jurisdictions during the pandemic crisis to be essentially continued and to become the platform for a new kind of economy and society. And those include, for instance, a hiatus on rent. They include perhaps something like a basic guaranteed income, but only if it's accompanied by a basic guaranteed and excellent quality public services that might include things like the nationalization of key industries, which have shown themselves to be completely useless and remiss in the moment of pandemic. It might include uh, all sorts of free services, which hitherto have had user fees attached to them. So there's a sense that already in this crisis, we're seeing what it would mean to call the debts in ourselves those of us proverbially at least at the bottom of society and say in fact our society and our the powers that be owe us we don't owe them and we will not pay afterwards for this crisis but that requires a huge amount of social mobilization
0: do you think that's where we will be standing post-crisis that it will be the competition will be between grassroots, bottom-up socialism, and top-down fascism, because during COVID-19 and in reaction to it, how easily could any, any nation that currently claims to be a democracy simply slide into authoritarian dictatorship? I mean, considering the rise of far-right leaders around the world, Trump, Bolsonaro, uh, Boris Johnson, Orbán, Duterte, Modi, even Netanyahu, Aren't we in a position far more situated for the top-down fascism to be the post-virus normal than any kind of grassroots or radical bottom-up socialism might be?
2: It is a huge danger, a huge danger. But let's, and as much as I think we need to attend to that and we need to fight it in every possible way, we also need to be very attentive to the fact that in almost all of the countries you've listed, there remains a very powerful very established uh and very influential um liberal capitalist class who don't like the fascists and the authoritarians who feel like the country has been stolen from them and who are eager in their own revanchist way to come back and seize power and control and they so we are looking at uh the next few years where we're going to see an intensification of a battle between the far right sort of neo-fascist tendency, but then also a very dangerous attempt to return us to a kind of older normal. And if we're very lucky, that that liberal normal may look like post-war Keynesianism. If we're very unlucky, it'll look like something that's led by the tech sector, where the welfare state is essentially replaced by a sort of benevolent algorithms. Uh, that that promise to deliver more efficiency in the provisioning of public services, but in fact are simply a kind of uh, cooperation between the state and corporations. So I think we're in a very dangerous moment and it becomes more and more important to be able to develop a language and movements that can refuse both, no to the new authoritarianism and no to the new capitalism. We have a world that we deserve to win and that neither of these systems are necessary. Um, So let's... Now kind of dedicate ourselves to figuring out how we're what we're going to demand that really puts people first and doesn't trust the management of society to either technocrats or authoritarians and let's begin to demand it not only in terms of rhetoric but also in terms of actions.
0: Tuesday's New York Times ran a front page uh, article in their business section with the headline, Big Tech May Emerge Stronger Than Ever, uh, after the virus, obviously. (laughs) Living during coronavirus means more time and money spent on devices of all types, and that's good for Silicon Valley, was the sub-headline. Is it already too late? Is there anything we can do, or is it certain that post-virus Silicon Valley will have more power, more control over our lives than pre-virus? Will we wax nostalgic for the pre-virus surveillance state that we had in the past?
2: I, you know, I mean, it's it's a very powerful sector, um, but they're not that powerful. I mean, you know, if we compare them to the major industries which have dominated capitalism in the past, uh, they're not that. Uh, you know, uh, dangerous or powerful, it's not that difficult for a government to seize their assets or to uh, pass regulations that impinge upon the tech sector. It's, you know, compared as it was to, for instance, major industries, let's say in the period of the 19th century, or compared to the huge uh, industrial monopolies of the mid-20th century, the tech sector essentially is a bunch of, uh, you know, apart from some very substantial infrastructure that they control is is mostly uh, human capital and copyrights and proprietary data. So, you know, when compared with the power of massive social movements and even when compared with the power of a state that chose to do something about it, this is not it's not like we're facing down Darth Vader here uh, we've sort of projected in our mind because their tools are so ubiquitous and we have become so attached to them that these tech corporations are, you know, uh, now exist They, you know, they're, they're in Mount Olympus and us mere mortals could never touch them, but they're, they're mortals like everyone else. And their technologies in fact, are in some ways easier to seize for common or public purposes than other industries. Uh, In the past. So I think we should keep that in mind. I'm not saying the fight will be in any way easy, but We should we should make the demand for the world that we want and then figure out how to make it possible Rather than sort of saying at the beginning, uh, you know, these guys have, you know, can track our every movement Uh,
0: You also write that the quarantined and semi-isolated are discovering using digital tools New ways to mobilize to provide care and mutual aid to those in our communities in need, which is fantastic But uh, are we potentially inadvertently making the mistake of using the same social industry platforms that might be turned against us? Does, depending upon Silicon Valley technology, even for organizing against Silicon Valley, empower Silicon Valley?
2: I mean, I think that's always a risk. uh, And movements have developed a series of um, precautionary protocols for dealing with that. So some movements are doing initial outreach to people through the media that they know, the social media that they know through Facebook, through Twitter, through Instagram, et cetera, but then trying to get people to transition off those onto other platforms that are either sort of uh, bespoke designed uh, or that are available on how various forms of encryption and security. Other times I think movements have made the decision that. Uh, You know these technologies essentially are so germane to the way that people live their lives that it's very difficult to get people to detach from them and the bigger challenge right now is to get them to detach from a sense of hopelessness alienation and helplessness. Um, So I think in some ways that's a question more for uh, organizers and activists on the ground the extent that they want to use these technologies with all due respect to my many many friends who've been working for many years to fight the tech companies and build autonomous platforms. I don't think we should necessarily wait until everyone starts using an open source and uh, encrypted version of Linux and email to, how, to kick off a revolution.
0: You write that already in the state of emergency that the crisis has unleashed, we are seeing extraordinary measures emerge that reveal that much of the neoliberal regime's claims to necessity and austerity were transparent lies. How do the measures that are being taken right now prove the rationalization for austerity? That is for not spending on social services, for not having universal health care, for not funding education, for not raising the federal minimum wage, for undermining public sector unions, for allowing infrastructure to crumble, for not being able to do what we can about climate change because it's too expensive, and for many other reasons. How does stimulus during crisis prove that austerity and everything it forwarded were lies?
2: I think they revealed that ultimately all of these things are choices about how we're going to organize society and how we're going to organize human cooperation and human labor. Uh, and also I should mention the labor of non-humans as well, ranging from, you know, computers and, and robots to uh, animals, plants and other forms of life. This is, there's been a decision that's been made about how all of this cooperation is going to be organized. And the decision. That was made that we never knew was made was that essentially we would leave this up to the market and we would leave the market up to a handful of incredibly powerful corporations and individuals with some sort of bare minimum of a state to make sure that those individuals and corporations didn't actually completely ruin the planet uh, and and sacrifice the human life that they depended on. Uh, and now what's being revealed is that other choices can be made. If in an emergency, we can begin to offer all sorts of things for free, if we can recognize that rent is not a necessity but an option, if we can understand that healthcare is not something that needs to be provided by private companies but can be offered as a public service, and on and on and on, all of the different things we're discovering in this moment of crisis, then it punctures a hole in the entire narrative of legitimation for the uh, system that's existed for the last 40 years which has told us that only markets can fairly and efficiently organize society and human cooperation that means i think that there is a a very rare opportunity to say that we could in fact organize all of that social cooperation differently that we could put it towards different ends and that the way in which we cooperate could be different, that we could cooperate as human beings, not through the wage relationship of, you know, being employed by someone and showing up every day and making their contribution to humanity largely through being told what to do by someone who then takes the fruits of your labor and goes on their yacht vacation with it. But instead, we could organize human cooperation towards the enrichment of everyone on some level that we could create a situation where we wouldn't uh, render ourselves susceptible to the spread of these virulent epidemics, which come from so many factors that have been sort of uh, built in society through the last 40 years of neoliberal austerity and sort of constant international competition.
0: That totally... That told us only, only markets, only markets can. That that's the only solution. Do you think people have died, especially here in the United States, because the Republican Party, because President Trump was waiting for the markets to solve the problem? Did the markets fail us, leading to deaths? And this is the potential end of the rationalization that markets can be our savior. Is that what the Republican Party, is that what Fox News is doing right now, just waiting for the markets to fix all of the problems as people die?
2: Yeah. I mean, let me say two things about that. The first is that I think what is happening among the sort of far right, both in the United States and the United Kingdom and Brazil is they're making a kind of calculus. There's a lot of buffoonery going on on the front, but there are smart people in behind. And essentially I think their calculus is this. There's a goal, this is from their perspective, which is basically sort of um, a, a sort of light form of fascism. All that exists in the world is the struggle of people against one another. And the only container of that struggle that makes sense is the kind of uh, bully boy nation state. So essentially, they all think, oh, we're seeing a global pandemic. We need to put our nation state in the best position to compete with other nation states when this pandemic is over. How are we going to do that? Well, if you're totally cynical about it, as they indeed are, then getting rid of Older and disabled adults in your population is generally good for a completely unscrupulous, fascistic, capitalist economy. Making sure that your economy gets back to work and starts being economically productive before other economies, especially since the crisis first hit China, and they're looking like they're going to be the first to recover, would be extremely important if your worldview is one of the constant war of all against all. So from a deeply cynical perspective, yes, we're all being put on the altar of the capitalist economy. Uh, and I think that the, the only difference is that some people in those uh, horrendous governments are slightly more honest about it than others. Now, but the second thing I would say is we've been on the altar of being sacrificed for the capitalist economy for a very long time, and it didn't just happen under the Republicans in the United States. There were many, many people sacrificed on the altar of capitalist accumulation under the Obama years, for instance, where millions of people were deported and where hundreds of thousands of people died of completely unnecessary causes in order to make sure that the economy didn't feel any harm. All around the world, people are on the sacrificial altar of global capitalism constantly, and it's estimated that already, you know, the, the number of people who have died in the same period that COVID-19 has been around from completely preventable causes, including malaria, malnutrition, diarrhea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are, are extremely high. So ultimately, what is happening in this moment is that many more of us who enjoyed the privileges of either being white or being citizens of wealthy, which is to say imperialist nations, or who happen to be middle class or aspiring to be a middle class, are finally realizing just how disposable we all are in the eyes of the system. Many other people have been disposable for a very long time.
0: So should we all, you know, anybody who's a socialist, let's say, should they all be very excited? Should they all be very elated and happy that Trump or whoever the right-wing leader who is now embracing socialist-looking policies, whoever you want to name, should socialists worldwide be jumping with joy now that the right is acting like they're socialists? Or should they be concerned that this is what one of your concerns, which concerns, which is the blurring of the line between humanitarianism and authoritarianism.
2: Yeah, I'd be very concerned. I mean, the strong tendency so far in the new authoritarian right has been their incredible love of free markets and a free market competition. But let's not forget that the original fascists were, uh, you know, had uh, because, evolved at a kind of a bastardization of socialist principles. The idea that the, the race and the nation needed to be firmly managed and the economy needed to be firmly managed by a kind of um, uh, unapologetic uh, leadership. So there is a very strong tendency within these uh, political currents to marshal state ownership of the means of production or corporatist relationships between government and corporations or sort of authoritarian measures uh, around the economy as a means to uh, expedite their uh, agenda. I mean, this is one of the things that Rosa Luxemburg, among others, warned us about the capitalist economy, that capitalism necessarily generates uh, contradictions within itself and crises within itself so much that it needs to be rescued at various moments by the authoritarian state. And it sort of, in a sense, capitalism puts itself in escrow for a moment where it says, you know, like, oh, we really screwed this up. Uh, We need someone to come in and and save us. And that's the time when they call in the authoritarians to clean house. And then back comes capitalism. And what does clean house mean? It means passing new laws that regulate trade union activity. It means uh, regulating public protest. It means getting rid of undesirable populations, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the things that if we don't mobilize now, we could likely see in a post-pandemic uh moment you know it's not unthinkable that in the name of preserving uh and returning the economy the capitalist economy to health the american or other governments might for instance trade uh might uh suspend collective bargaining or the right to strike why wouldn't they you know so uh, there's going to be a very dangerous and important moment coming so where movements need to come together And be be such a force in the streets and in society that that can be refused.
0: Or suspend a presidential election with people being fine with that because you're Approval ratings have gone up as the media is telling everyone that you're doing a great job in confronting the crisis even though people are dying while you're ignoring it. You, uh, I was also wondering, how where, how where do you think the public is that there will be a new, new normal when the virus ends, that returning to normal will be brutal and in the end impossible? In a
2: weird way, I think I, I would answer it two ways. On the first level, uh, I think as your question anticipates, People are really not aware of it on some level Um, that I I don't think people have a real sense of the stakes of this moment, which is that we're one of those we seem to be. I shouldn't say we are. I think we are. I assume we are at a moment of uh, a critical moment, which to draw on the kind of Greek roots of critical is the the moment of decision, the moment of, of, uh, of separation where we could go one path or another. And I don't think people are necessarily aware that those sorts of choices now face us and that we have options, that we don't have to go back to normal. But the second thing I think I would say is that in a weird way, a lot of people are aware of it. And I think they're aware of it in the sense that for the vast majority of people, no matter who gets elected, even before this pandemic, Things were just going to get worse. You know, whether they elected Clinton or Trump, whether they elected Biden or Trump, things are just going to get worse. And when you limit people's understanding of what politics is or could be to the electoral realm, they're right. That is the case for the vast majority of working class, especially racialized working class people in America. Things were going to get worse either way. They're getting worse faster under Trump, but they were going to get worse. And so people have a sense that the new normal is going to be worse. I think what the challenge is, is to say that we could change directions right now. And I think it's out of that cynicism that people feel that no matter what happens, it's just going to get worse, that they tend to turn towards either not voting or voting at least for the candidate that gives expression to their pain if they do nothing to change it, to sort of paraphrase Walter Benjamin.
0: One last question for you, Max. We have been speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, who wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal. And right there at the end, he was quoting Walter Benjamin, who's been quoted quite extensively recently on our show. The article that we have been discussing is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, the Ghosts of Empire, the Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts, which is due out in May. And Max, will you come back on our show so we can discuss that book with you, sir? It would be my pleasure. Uh, you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven, H A I V E N. You can find out more about Max at Maxhaven.com. As we do with all of our guests, Max, as you know, our final question is the question <laughs> from Hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Or our audience is going to hate your response. So this is very selfish of me, but while we reading your book I kept thinking something incredibly selfish, which is exactly why <laughs> what I shouldn't be doing, you know, I should be thinking selflessly, collectively working in mutual aid with others, but instead I thought selfishly the future you suggest is not only very possible, but very, very, very scary, very scary say for those who have been manufacturing dissent since 1996 here on This Is How. How frightened should I be about the fascist future that is not only possible, but I'm telling you, it's very, very likely. As somebody who not really makes a living manufacturing dissent, how frightened should I be for our future?
2: Well, uh, I wish I had something reassuring and optimistic to say. I think that in an unprecedented way, well, I wouldn't say unprecedented, in a very uh, exciting way, the United States society is more mobilized and more accepting of socialist and generally uh, liberatory ideas than they've ever been. There's a higher level of grassroots mobilization than there's been in a very long time. Uh, the opportunities are abundant, uh, and we have also coming towards us in the near future, very important splits between elites and different factions of capital. And those present great opportunities for movements to make huge gains. I'm not sure that we're necessarily going to, at this moment in history, go either full fascism or full, you know, automated luxury communism, uh, Lots can happen and none of us can predict what's going to happen. So if there's anything we've learned from this pandemic, it's that we need to give up a little bit on the, the sense of control and certainty that we might have had beforehand and accept that things will play out as they will play out.
0: Max, I really appreciate you being back on the show. You know we're going to be bugging you in May so we can have you on to discuss your new book, Revenge Capitalism, that's being published by Pluto Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's always great to hear from you. That was a fantastic conversation. I truly appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview.
1: For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.
0: Oh yeah, Revenge Capitalism. I totally forgot about having uh, Max back on to talk about that book. And in, in fact, we may have. I just don't remember. And Dan, you were saying earlier about uh, urban exploration. We had a guest on uh, several years ago, Lauren Elkin, who wrote a book called Flaneuse, which is the feminine of flaneur, which uh-huh. is uh, just walking around. Yeah, it's a good word. Exploring the city. And you should check out that book or check out that interview because it's they're real, it's really, really great. Especially... From a woman's perspective of walking around the city,
1: it's know? true. I had imagined a man whenever I thought of a flaneur. Sure, I guess that's what the word means—is a man. Mm-hmm. I would like to. What's it called? Flaneur. Flaneuse. F L A N
0: U S E. Flaneuse by Lauren Elkin. Wait, cool. All right, and I'll see if I have a PDF of it, and that way I'll just give it to you.
1: One last thing.
0: Uh, pretending to know, to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard in our March 25th, 2020 interview with Max Haven on the normal that wasn't and what a new and improved, not-so-normal could be. If that made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so
1: far. This week's question from hell, what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses, maybe? Over at Facebook, we got John T., who answers AI-enhanced hail of frogs. <laughs> Neil C. Merrily answers golden shower. Oh, God. A kind of golden shower. Over at Twitter, Eve Online says nuclear winter. Jamie K. finally answers do meteors? Oh, do meteor strikes count? You gotta think they would. It's a meteorological event. Sure. <laughs> so. And that does it for the question from hell.
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You still have an opportunity to answer this week's question from hell. All you have to do is leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us or you can email thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, become a subscriber on Patreon. On this week's Patreon, it's the power of audio, in fact. Sound can be the most powerful of our senses, as we often ignore it and just allow it to do its own thing. While we go about our daily lives Sometimes we choose the sounds that accompany us In our living soundtracks When we do, those sounds create images And suddenly we are engulfed in a world Of our own creation, our own imagination That may or may not match the reality Of where those sounds are actually coming from Or who is making them It is the greatest power of radio Not the actual sounds themselves But what the mind's eye of the audience sees In those brief moments of silence That is when audio and radio are at their most powerful, when the listener has to fill in the gaps. Yes, radio is its most powerful in those silent breaks. Also on Patreon, on Monday of this week, the former editor and then publisher of The Nation magazine, Victor Navasky, died at his home in Manhattan. He was 90 years old. He was also on This Is How Once back in 2005 to talk about what would become his award-winning book, A Matter of Opinion, which is a memoir of his over 30 years of working at The Nation. So, in his memory, we are playing our interview with Victor from June 25, 2005. And what I remember most about that conversation is that, first, we were surprised he would actually agree to be on our show. And then, second, how he told me that constantly learning and never stopping was actually a noble mission. But the only way you can hear a blind guy talk about the power of sound in an interview with the late Victor Navasky is by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell coming up the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and we will be announcing this week's winner we'll also tell you what's happening on next week's show live from hangover country this is Hell as I was saying if you do become a Patreon subscriber you get an extra episode of This is Hell every week each episode has an interview from our archives that is not currently available anywhere online and a monologue from me exclu- uh, <laughs> exclusively on Patreon Look I got a root canal yesterday I'm having some issues when we asked listeners to choose their favorite interviews to be playing during our to be played during our best of 2022 episodes over the holidays One of you, Essel S., did not suggest an interview, but something else. We asked what interviews listeners wanted to hear during the Best of 2022 shows, and Essel instead wrote, This doesn't answer your question, but my favorite of your monologues was probably the Patreon episode about the Bangkok Inn and your relationship reflections. So, as suggested by listener Essel S., who absolutely rocks... Here is my Patreon monologue for October 13th, 2022, on the day before my anniversary with my non-wife, my unspouse, my more-than-a-girlfriend, and our unlicensed love.
1: You are here, and this is
0: hell. Tomorrow, my girlie and I are celebrating our anniversary. On the show and off, I refer to her as my girlie, sometimes my common-law wife or my non-wife, my anti-spouse, any number of terms I've made up, none of which are all that great at describing our relationship as we're not married. I've even been lazy and called her my girlfriend, but when you have been together as long as we have, when you have lived together, cohabitated as long as we have, girlfriend does not seem to suggest the permanence of our present and ongoing relationship. I, I know that some may not be completely comfortable with me calling her my girly. Understandably, the term can conjure images of being demeaned or subordinate, even infantilizing. To explain, my term of endearment for her comes from a mid-1980s independently published feminist magazine called Girlie Mag, which was published and edited by a writer whose later work is highly critically acclaimed. As I was told at the time, the girlie and Girlie Mag was meant as a way for feminists to reclaim the G word, which can be understood as a derogatory word for women. I have no idea if the person who was behind Girlie Mag at the time would feel how they'd feel about that decision to call that magazine Girlie Mag today, and I certainly do not want to bring them any grief over something they did a very long time ago, so I'm not going to share their name here, all of which implies that I am somewhat uncomfortable using the descriptor "girly," but we're not married. And partner sounds almost antiseptic, even bland, without any real character other than some contractual agreement that protects the rights of both parties coming to a financial arrangement, which is exactly what we do not want in our relationship and why we are not married. It always amazes me how libertarians will jump up and down and even sideways given the chance. They will spend all day on a trampoline with a bullhorn screaming about how they do not want any government interference in any part of their lives, yet they insist on getting a marriage license when they decide to attempt a long Lifelong relationship with someone they allegedly love It's an admission that libertarians are not anti-government Like conservatives They are only anti-government When they are not benefiting from government policies or institutions Exactly like conservatives They're not anti-government They are opposed to not benefiting off government largesse And if they are not benefiting Then all government, government and governance must be bad It's the epitome of selfishness Which is what libertarianism is the politics of me first selfishness and screw everyone else. That said, I'm, I'm not a libertarian, nor is the person with whom I live. However, we both find the licensing of love going into a written agreement with the government in which you give the government the authority of permitting love and forcing our love with law. We find all that not all that, well, romantic. Marriage license does not connote the excitement or the mystery of being in love with someone else. Licenses are for conducting business, for hunting, for fishing, for driving a car, and getting a government permit to be in a committed, loving relationship with the same person for the rest of your life sounds boring, without any passion, other than the love of, well, I guess, paperwork and bureaucracy. I completely understand that what that a marriage provides all sorts of benefits. Of course it does. In our society, capitalism fully approves of marriage because it provides the free labor that the market depends upon for its success, and it's always dependent upon for its success. You know, like in places like the antebellum South. Therefore, marriages are incentivized by laws enforcing capitalism, especially those marital unions uh, that create family businesses, where even more people are engaged in employment that does not pay as well as others within the job market, without the benefits necessary, even avoiding taxes and insurance that would need to be covered if the workers were not family. If it's cheap la- cheaper free labor capitalism incentivizes it even if that means regulating love some of the benefits the public and private sector give those who engage in marriage they can be life-saving activist Andy Thayer once told me here on the show uh, during the campaign for gay marriages that there are approximately 300 benefits legal benefits that are accessible only once a couple is licensed to be married for instance as my unwife and I are not married I cannot get on her employer's health care, which means I have to pay for my own health care out of pocket. And as there is very little in any of my pockets, let's just say my health care is substandard. Meanwhile, hers is fantastic. As we are not married, the law even enforces inequality within our own home. Despite all the material gains awarded to people for getting married, or maybe because of them, we are still very unmarried. So it would only make financial sense for us to get married, especially me, the person who would by far benefit the most from such a contractual arrangement yet that's another reason i'm certain getting married would leave a bad taste in my mouth leaving it bitter making me feel disgusted with myself as being married would be con- contradictory or inconsistent with my feelings about love commingled with the demands of the market and enforced by the state there are also religious reasons to get married but my girlie is an atheist And not the kind that, you know, goes to meetings for which, for all intents and purposes, resemble religious services, despite the attendees who are there identifying as anti-religious. Now, I was raised Catholic, which means like my more than a partner, I am also anti-religious. Because once you have read the history of the church and realize how systematically cruel and brutal it has been, and the recent revelations of abuse that were implicitly known by just about everyone in the church for centuries if not millennia and its devastating hoarding of wealth which i do not remember being recommended anywhere in the teachings of christ after becoming aware of all that how the hell could i still be roman catholic once you know what roman the history of roman catholicism it's kind of hard to stay catholic nothing against any of you who are catholic it's not you all organized religion has its filthy laundry as is and is uh, filled with contradictions It's just that when being raised in the church and not given a choice about it, having your membership imposed upon you by others, others who tell you that once you turn 18, you can decide if you want to go to church anymore or not, making it seem like leaving the church is a rite of passage, like graduating from high school. My specific dislike for religion is aimed at the church that was forced upon me. So rebelling against it, well, that just makes sense to me. Yet here on the show, we have spoken with Catholics and Christians who have done great work, from articulating revolutionary liberation theology to working with the poor, as Reverend Dr. Liz Harris described on this week's show. There are many self-identifying religious people and their organizations that offer people, the other people, the respect and food and shelter and clothing all humans deserve. Then there's the kindness of Islam that I see on display in my neighborhood, where meals are given out more freely than anything I've ever witnessed from any religion before in my life. As we do not want the government to play any role in the most intimate aspect of our lives, and neither of us is religious, we never got married. We have yet to view health insurance as a good enough reason to commit matrimony. And to be honest, when we get to that point, my guess is that marriage would be doomed. Friends of ours have told us together and separately that we should just go get married as they did. We are usually given the suggestion by a couple that just got married. They often tell us how, despite the couple being together for so long before they exchanged vows, getting married had a huge impact on their relationship, becoming far more trusting and loving, both emotionally and physically. And of those married couples suggesting we do the same, more than half of those relationships have now ended in divorce. And remember, the cause of all divorce is marriage. When we had been together for only 15 years, I asked my aging parents if they would like my non-spouse and I, to get married, as all of my other siblings had. I asked them if, it, if that would make them happy, as we were all very aware that the sand of time was running out for my folks. Without missing a beat, my mom said, Chuck, why mess with a good thing? Why would you get married? So, what are we celebrating tomorrow? What happened 35 years ago, way back on October 14th, 1987? That's right, 30 Five years ago, the Bangkok Inn, that's what. We knew each other for a few years, and there was definitely a lot of flirting going on, but we were just friends. Very good friends, but just friends. We had gone out on a few dates, or at least what I clumsily thought were dates, but she did not. We would go for long walks as we explored Chicago shortly after moving here, but I was apparently not getting the message across that I was interested in being more than friends. So I asked her out to dinner. When I did, I made the point of telling her that I did not want any other of our mutual friends to join us, that I only wanted to go out to dinner with her. I still wasn't absolutely certain if she would get what my intentions were, and I wanted to make certain she was certain, and I knew I wanted to go to this Thai restaurant, the first Thai restaurant I'd ever been to, as unsurprisingly, Detroit and Lansing, Michigan are not hot spots for Thai cuisine, and I found that I absolutely love Thai food. That restaurant, which is long gone but used to be under the L-Tracks where the train passes over Lincoln Avenue by Wrightwood in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, that restaurant was called the Bangkok Inn. It was not my original intent to be sending some less-than-subliminal message about my intentions for the evening, but let's just say... Thank you, Bangkok Inn. If it was not for the subtlety of your restaurant's name, who knows where our relationship would be today. Years later, when my unwife was asked by members of my family while we were on vacation, sitting around the fire up north, asked what we celebrate on our anniversary, what happened on that day to make it our anniversary, when they say, what did you guys do on October 14th to make that your anniversary? My girly replied... Everything. With the tone in her voice that seemed to dare a follow-up question, and no follow-up question was asked as to what everything included. If a marriage license is not keeping us together, then what is? Obviously the biggest reason for any success in our relationship is the reason all relationships survive for as long as ours has and longer, and that is... The love we have for one another. The love has always been there, although it was a bit rocky at the start as we were both coming out of relationships and were uninterested in diving back into yet another serious relationship. I can only make guesses as to why our relationship has survived as long as it has, so any advice I have to offer on having a long relationship should come with a Surgeon General's warning, as it is likely not what will work for you. After all, some relationships can be as toxic as any pack of cigarettes. I was told that to have a successful and happy relationship, you should never go to bed angry. And I completely agree, unless you're drunk. Then go to bed as fast as possible, because more than likely, the next day it will take hours for you to remember what the fight was about and a few hours to recollect what was said, although as you are both drunk, it will likely not be what was actually said at the time. And the whole thing evaporates into nothingness, which is likely what the argument was based on to begin with. So sober, mostly sober arguments leading to full-blown fights and intense anger, yeah, don't go to bed angry if those are the conditions for said anger. Inebriated or under the influence of anything, including prescription drugs, don't have that argument if you can avoid it. Again, being inebriated may get in the way of stopping a confrontation, but if you can uh, state that you're both wasted and you you can talk about it tomorrow when clear heads and foggy memories will prevail, do that. Several years ago, I was having sinus and bronchial issues and was prescribed a nasal inhaler that had steroids in it. After what had been a few weeks of me getting increasingly angry, provoking countless arguments, and that I never considered the anger was being fueled by anything I was ingesting, as it was bursting, as I, you know, was bursting out with just anger all the time. After several arguments, which were clearly provoked, if not instigated by me, it was pointed out that. Ever since I had been on steroids, I'd become a raging asshole. It was a revelation to me. I'd never considered steroids having that kind of effect on me, but they were. Once I realized that was the case, I immediately threw the inhaler away and we went months without the slightest disagreement. So before you get angry with the person you want to be with for the rest of your life, do a self-inventory of what you have and have not ingested that day. If you're drinking alcohol on an empty stomach or jacked on caffeine or under a pharmacist's care, Recognize what you have taken that may be behind your anger. When it comes to having a long-term relationship, I've found that laughing helps a lot. My mother once said of me and my more-than-a-girlfriend that the uh, success in our relationship is because the two of you are so much alike. At the time, I had no idea where she was coming from. I I saw us as two very independent people with very different interests. She's a freaking sculptor of 3D objects and got her master's in animation. She's an award-winning writer. She was raised in a family that has long line of carpenters and has intense carpentry skills and is a very, very mechanically minded person, none of which we share in common. Since I was a kid, I've read the newspaper, watched the news, fascinated by current events to the point where I was so sucked into what is happening at the moment that I could not even see the bigger picture, unable to step back from what is taking place right now to see what brought us to this point and the historical context to understand what I was seeing, reading, and hearing. The point of the show for me, of This Is Hell for me, is to get rid of the tunnel vision and start considering the forest instead of the trees. Being caught up in the moment, I also followed sports very closely. And When I was introduced to gambling at a very young age, I became even more fascinated by sports. I've always been a huge fan of comedy, willing to spend countless hours watching or listening to what is arguably dumb humor, from an outsider's point of view at least. However, I would analyze, deconstruct jokes and... Marvel at the way a punchline is crafted, all of which is pretty lowbrow stuff. Our differences were clear to me, and how my mother saw my girlie and I as similar was beyond my understanding, but then my mom explained, What you have in common is, you have the same twisted sense of humor. Despite everything that made us different from each other, it was evident that we laughed at some pretty bizarre shit. That's what we have in common, not interests as much as a worldview that informs our understanding of what is happening around us and how, at times, the ridiculousness of everything makes us both burst a gut, metaphorically, although mine literally bursted this spring, but with those varied interests, both of us have learned about different fields of knowledge from each other with which we have had limited or no contact in the past. No, she has not become a sports fan, thank God. And to be honest, as sports is a very guilty pleasure for me, I, I cannot imagine ever being with someone who is as interested in gambling on events as I am. Sure, I enjoy talking about sports with others, but if that shit was going on in my house, I'm pretty sure I would have run away screaming a very long time ago. And I definitely do not want to be with someone who agrees with me all the time. Having someone who challenges your opinions is far better Than having a person who simply says yes Whenever you say well anything Can it be aggravating When simply looking for affirmation Definitely But why seek affirmation in the first place If that's all that is being sought A conversation with yourself is far far better Than having a conversation with someone else As our knowledge Differs greatly We are both constantly curious About what the other has to say Realizing one of us is far more of an authority On certain topics than the other Whole worlds can be opened up to you by someone who is not like you in every way. Maybe it's not what each of us knows that attracts us to each other. Maybe what's important is not sharing similar interests, but something bigger, like a sense of humor, which is a reflection of something much deeper than what exists only at the surface level. A friend once told me that they could not be with someone if the person was not a fan of their favorite sports team, and especially not if they were a fan of their rival. Friends have said they could not be with someone who had different tastes in music or films or literature. None of those people I just mentioned is currently in a relationship right now. They were so busy trying to find someone who was compatible with themselves that they did not look beyond the limited, that limited scope. I would argue that a life with someone who, on the surface, is very different from you can be very, very rewarding indeed. In fact, the discovery of what you do have in common, like a sense of humor, can be exhilarating and filled with happiness and, yes, the mystery that also comes with love. Again, as we are not married during our time together, she has referred to me in many ways, but one that is often used is, this is my man, which often leads to people laughing. Not, I mean, don't get me wrong, she says it in a way meant to get laughs, but she also says it in a very definitive way as if she's asking, is there anything else that needs to be said? Don't get me wrong, not being married has its challenges. One that you may not recognize the discrimination faced by unmarried couples, not only when it comes to access to health care, but doing most anything as a couple. If she gets a phone call for me and I am not Around the, uh, And I'm not around to pick up the phone The caller will often not give her any information If she says she's my girlfriend The same thing happens to me If a caller calls asking for her If I say I'm her boyfriend the, The call pretty much ends However, if say the hospital does call Or a doctor with information I need And she says she is my wife Without missing a beat The caller is pouring out all sorts of personal information Repeatedly breaking HIPAA protocols Without thinking twice about it If we decided that tomorrow night we will go out to dinner for our 35th anniversary, 35 years, and we tell the restaurant or waitron that it is our anniversary but we are not married, you can bet we'll get a sideways glance that questions our authority to call this our 35th anniversary. After all, you're not married. But she's not my wife, as I said. shes We're not married for 35 mostly happy years. Yet despite our commitment to our relationship, a commitment that has outlasted many marriages among our friends and family, just being together for a long time is not good enough for many in society. We are living a life in sin because we have not let some religion or another have a say over our feelings toward one another because we have not allowed the state to have a say in the most intimate aspect of our lives. Somehow our relationship does not live up to the gold standard of a marriage that the church, the state, and far too many of us in our society hold to such high esteem. Despite so many betrothals being abandoned, so many vows being violated, and so much love lost in marriage. Yes, even in my personal, most intimate, loving relationship, this is hell. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Dan, do we have any more answers to this week's question from hell? And please remind us again, what is this week's question from hell?
1: Absolutely we do not. And uh, this week's question from hell was, what weather event would bring humanity to its senses, maybe?
0: The answers I liked most were Fabio saying hell freezing over. Obviously, that's an easy... Uh, One to pick as the winner because it has hell in the answer Uh, Cody saying Cthulhu's Awakening Which is hilarious Uh, Ronaldo saying probably none SLS, thank you SLS for suggesting we play that Patreon monologue You can hear those kinds of monologues at patreon.com slash thisishell SLS saying electroconvulsive therapy inducing thunderstorms Jamie uh, K saying do meteors strikes count And Eve saying Nuclear Winter, that makes this week's winner Eve and Nuclear Winner. Underscore Eve online on Twitter, you are this week's winner. All you have to do is contact us and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. You would like sent to you and send us your mailing address and we'll get it in the mail. Immediately, congratulations Uh, My answer to this week's question from hell Is there, well, what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses, maybe? Well, it's the correct answer And there isn't one As when such a cataclysmic weather event happens Instead of putting the blame on humanity's impact on the environment The true denialists will say that it's God's work So there's nothing to do except allow God's work to be done Now let's go on, let's go... Own the libs by clearing the lawn with our coal-fired leaf blower. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from Al Dan, who is confirmed as our only guest so far for next week.
1: That's right. Next week we have one confirmed guest in Lewis Gordon. Lewis Gordon is author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Lewis is a professor a philosophy and department head at the University of Connecticut.
0: Thanks to this week's producer, Sebastian Vopper. Thank you for your final uh, day of running the board here on This Is Hell this past Monday. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey and Dan Hill for do, uh, producing, and to Jeff and Ronaldo Magaldi, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry Thurn, Humiston, Pete Valavanis, and... Mel the Cat, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash when I will be raving about the power of sound. And we'll be playing our t- 2005 interview with the former editor and publisher of The Nation, Victor Navasky, who passed away this week. Join us for This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time beginning around 6 and going until at least 10 p.m. this evening. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I will give you a free book. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday Evening starting around 6 Running till about 10 At Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue In Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood There's only one way To get over all of the problems That we've introduced to you On this week's set of shows That's by sitting down In the lotus position Turning your palms Towards the sky Focusing on that burning white dot In the middle of your forehead And saying these simple words Everybody's stupid
1: My demon is on my butt (laughs) Uh, My demon talks to me Profanity like a sailor